Good morning, everybody. It is great to see you all this morning. A quick reminder, we have friends that come in over the first few minutes of the class. And so if you have a lot of space in your pew, consider shifting over a little bit just to make sure that our visitors who might come in late or our friends who just come in late have a place to squeeze in. We've had such great attendance that I want to make sure we remain comfortable for everybody as they come. So before we get started today, we, as many of you know, especially those of you who are St. Michael members, we are in the middle of our stewardship season. And I've asked Sally Taylor to come and just give a quick word to you about why she and her family choose to support St. Michael. And a quick fun word, one of the ways that Sally got connected to St. Michael is through this Bible study. And so... I like to say, yay, <laughs> Sally's here. So she's just gonna give you just a quick word about stewardship and why she finds it important to support the ministries here as an encouragement to you as well. Thanks, Sally. Uh, good morning. And um, so my husband, Ross, and our two little boys, we um, are fairly new to St. Michael. We've been coming here about three years now. And um, when I was asked to come share a little personal story about um, why we give to the church, uh, there's a fairly simple, quick response uh, to that. And that is that uh, my husband and I both grew up in the Baptist church. And until about three years ago, we were still in the Baptist church. And um, as Baptists, um, there tends to be a kind of a regular emphasis and focus on the act of tithing. That is, whenever you get money, receive it as a gift or from work, you give back a portion um, to God and to the church as an act of gratitude and worship. And so growing up, if you got money for your birthday, well, you give back a portion because God made you. And if you, um, you know, earn money for chores or I'm an artist and I, I started to earn money for painting, well, when you earn money, you give back a portion to God because he's the one that made your hands and brain and creativity and on and on. And so the idea being that none of it's yours anyway, so go ahead and give back in gratitude. And um, so the simple answer why we give, well, we were just taught to do it. And um, however, as we got older and in the working world and got married and began to have conversations around, um, is this a habit and a practice that we wanted to continue for ourselves now that we could decide for ourselves? Um, we started to look back and realized that um, over time, this practice of regular tithing had really changed us and shaped us um, in really important and wonderful ways. And though it was handed to us from a Baptist tradition, um, I realized it was kind of wonderfully Episcopalian. Um, let me explain. So we actually started um, initially being interested in the Episcopal Church through the idea of liturgy and liturgical worship. And as we began reading about it and learning and talking to people, um, we learned that the idea that there are these regular practices, either daily prayers or weekly in worship or annually with the church calendar, that there's, there's these regular habits. And if you do them over and over in worship, um, that they have the ability to change and shape you in ways that doing them on occasion just doesn't have the same effect. Um, and so we started coming and um, we realized that was in fact true, that there were these prayers that we were now saying weekly that all of a sudden were changing us. And so as we say the confession every week that all of a sudden during the week, I'm starting to think about what are those things that I've done and left undone? and the physicality of walking forward and, um, and humility and that position of humility you're put in um, in Eucharist to receive the grace really changes your mind and heart. Um, and what we realized is that we were actually through the Baptist tradition kind of handed essentially a liturgy around giving, that it's this regular habitual 
um, act and practice of worship that over time really has the ability to change and shape you in ways that just doing it occasionally simply doesn't have the same effect. So, um, you know, every time we get money and monthly when we sit down to, to give back, we um, end up taking stock and start being more grateful. And as we're more grateful, we give more joyfully and freely. And as we give more joyfully and freely, um, we're more grateful. And it's this cycle, and the cycle has the effect of really loosening money's grip on us. And um, that the verse that um, Jesus says that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Um, that it really has become true that if we put our money in the things of the world, that that's where our heart goes and we want more stuff of the world. And if we put our money in the things of God, that um, that's where our heart goes and we kind of want more stuff of God. And so um, I'm so grateful for how I was raised and I'm grateful to be here now and being shaped and formed in all kinds of new ways. So. Thank you, Sally. Appreciate that. Man, Baptists are good. God, I love that. That's so good. Episcopalians, we have a lot to learn. Um, I love Baptists. They just get all this stuff. You know, when Baptists figure out that God loves them and that God loves everyone else, it's beautiful. So we love having Baptists. I always tell um, Baptists whenever I meet them that they make the best Episcopalians. And so... <laughs> kind of bring them on in. It's wonderful. So thank you, Sally. That's great. Um, this is a season in which we make pledges and gifts to the church. And if we are not careful, it feels like a fundraiser. So it's not a fundraiser. What we are doing, I mean, I say regularly in different ways, it's not about giving money to the church. It's about you giving money away. You, we, are gripped by money because the world tells us it's what's really important. And what we do as a faith community here is we loosen that grip. That's what Sally said. I think that's a great image. We loosen the grip that money has on us by giving enough away to where we are changed. That becomes that first fruits giving, which... If you have read ahead, you know we're going to be talking about today in chapter four. So we'll discuss this more and more, but we like to plant these seeds as we go along the way that this is not like an NPR fund drive. This is an opportunity for you to actually change the way that you live. That is what giving does. It's not about building a budget. It's about changing your heart. And so if you do not feel like it has changed you yet, that giving has changed you yet, give more because it will. Okay, let's open with a prayer and we'll get rolling. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this beautiful day and for bringing us together that we can study the word you have handed off to us. We hope that you will inspire us with this study, that you will inspire us with the friendships that surround us, and that you will inspire us with the words that we receive not only from you, but through you and through one another. May we leave this place changed, empowered, and given the courage to extend your kingdom here on earth. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. One more quick word that I want to explain. Last week I mentioned these leaves, these gratitude leaves that we're building out in the hallway. These are meant for you to just put something anonymous on the leaf. We had a number of people concerned they didn't want to put their name on the leaf. I don't want you to put your name on the leaf. 
Like actually don't put your name in the leaf. Like just say something that you're grateful for. It's, do you ever get going to the grocery store or some other place and they say, if you give a dollar, you give $5, you can put your name on something that goes across the wall and you see how many people have been generous. That's really what we're looking for here, except less tacky. So <laughs> we're gonna do these. Stop and fill out the leaf on your way out because it really gives us a chance to act on our gratitude. And it seems so small. It's not small. Little manual acts actually change us from the inside out. So stop, fill out a leaf of whatever you want, whether it's you or your children or whatever, and be grateful. I also want to note before we get rolling that the Women of St. Michael luncheon is today. We will end in time for those of you who are going to that luncheon. So no worries on that. All right, so we are in chapter four, and we had some really great questions last week, and I'm going to get to some of those questions after we map out what we're doing today. So today we actually, I try not to have more than about three, maybe four sections. Today I have five, and I just couldn't help it. So the first section, we're going to be talking about new birth. Really, it's sort of the first birth. Second, we're going to be talking about giving to God. Third, the murder. The drama begins. Fourth, after the murder, we're gonna be talking about God's strength in love. Strength of love. And then finally, and we won't spend much time on this, we're gonna look at the growth of civilization in general. So before we jump into all of that, we have a few great questions from last week. Um, again, you've got these cards in the pew back in front of you. At least you should. If you don't, let me know because they're supposed to be there. These are great ways for you to do two things. You can submit a prayer request to us. We can add prayer requests to the beginning of Bible study. So if there's something you really want to pray for in this group, do fill this out. Leave that prayer request. It's also a nice way for you to just ask a question. If you don't want to raise your hand during the class, which I know is not comfortable, for a lot of people, put your question on paper or send me an email. I've gotten a couple email questions as well so that we can clarify some things week to week. From last week, got a few questions. Where did fig leaves come from? You know what? I read this question and I thought I understood it. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not exactly sure if someone's asking where the fig leaves came from or where the skins for the garments came from. I think that's what actually this question is. If it's about the fig leaves, they were just there. I mean, because things were growing in the gardens. That's a little easy. But if it's about the skins for the garments, in a macro sense, and this is going to kind of answer most of the answer to all these questions, it is difficult for us to keep this in the front of our mind, but I want us to try. There wasn't a reporter writing down the action of God's conversations with Adam and Eve. And I know that sound, I don't mean that to sound insulting. It, we read these stories and we believe so deeply that the Bible is real that it's difficult for us to hold together what I would say is the truth of these stories and not the historicity 
of the stories. So many times I get people who will ask the question, why did God say that? That's not actually the best question to ask. The better question is, why did the people who told that story think God would say that? That's the question. Because these stories are written by human people. And they were written way after supposedly these things happened. So you've already heard me say this in one way. I'll say it a different way and I'll keep saying it. I don't think that this happened in the historic sense. Nor did anyone who wrote these stories. That wasn't at all what they were trying to explain with these stories. They were trying to explain their current reality by telling stories that they believed were true of God in the past. So they tell these stories, like the creation story, in order to actually answer a question that they are having in their real life. So we will see very truly one question any normal human person would have living in the world is why are people mean to each other? I mean, why would people kill each other? Why would they steal? Why would they treat each other badly? Because fundamentally, we probably shouldn't. I mean, it's not really in our best interest to treat one another badly, just logically. And so why then would we if it doesn't make a lot of sense? So then they go back and they tell the story in a way that tries to answer that why. You may have heard me say in the past that science and religion are excellent companions because they ask two different questions. Religion asks why, and science asks how. So science, when science goes off to try and prove how things work, we do not need to fear because we, as people of faith, really shouldn't worry about the how things work questions. We should worry about the why. And if we're asking the why and science asks the how, we learn more together at the same time. These stories are written to try and answer the why. So when a question comes up like, where did the skins come from for the garments that God made for Adam and Eve? Perfectly good question, but I want to take one step back to say it doesn't really matter because there was no actual Adam and Eve with skins put on them like that. That's really not the point of the story. The point of the story is that they disobeyed God. They did something that God told them not to, which hurt them. They succumbed to sin, which hurt them. God, in response to their sinfulness, loved them anyway. We'll see the same thing happen with Cain. In response to Cain's sinfulness, God loved him anyway. That is the point. So don't worry about the specifics, you know, whether it was a fig leaf or whether it was an apple or it was a fruit. I mean, remember someone said, it's not an apple. Who cares? I mean, it could be an orange or a peach or a carrot, whatever. It just needs to be the act of disobeying God so that we learn again, God loves us anyway. That's the point. So there's a second question here that actually I, I kind of get, I think this is, this is important. I mentioned last week about Jewish 
cleansing laws, you know, ritual cleanness. And so someone asked, if a woman is so unclean, can at birth, like the act of birth makes a woman unclean, how could a baby that is born totally fresh, blemishless, also be considered unclean if the act of birth is this unclean thing? And it's a great question because we as modern people value every individual to the point where we see these babies as just perfect, right? Nothing is wrong with a baby. They haven't done anything wrong yet. They are just perfect and pure and clean and it's great. That is a very modern construct in history and not just, not just ancient history, like 80 to 100 years ago history. Kids were not considered pure, perfect, clean. Kids were necessary and at best, okay. I mean, they, you didn't eat with your children. You didn't play with your children. I mean, children were there to do work, right? For most people, children were a necessary way to continue to maintain your security and your stability. People had to have a lot of kids because some died and they needed enough to be able to work for the good of the family. Children were something that was uh, useful. They were like fuel. It's only modernity, modernity, where children become these pure little angels. Because the Lord knows they're only pure little angels for a minute. Um, I want us to not perceive laws around cleansing to be necessarily punitive. That was not the intent. The intent about cleansing laws in the Jewish tradition was to make worship of God most special. It's kind of like, just got in this conversation with our kids the other day, why would you dress better than normal to go to church on Sunday? Because very truly, God does not care, right? Jesus doesn't care what you wear to church. Jesus wants you at church, okay? They want you to worship, but we, I mean, I'll speak for myself as a parent. I want an experience of worship to be marked as something special. The act of preparing more to do it is not meant to be punitive. It's meant to make the act of worship even more special. In, an, in a way that we don't necessarily agree with, I will note, cleansing laws were meant to do a similar thing. So just like you want clean shoes and a slightly nicer clothing on children to come to church, Jews wanted to make sure that they were really prepared for worship to be the most special. So they created an elaborate set of laws around being clean that happened to make it a whole lot more difficult for women. At the time, the men who made the laws were not concerned. We can look back at that and say, it really is not necessary because worship is the point, not how clean we are for worship.
And if we want to get real theological, we're never clean enough for worship. That's actually the real point, is that you come and are made clean by God's grace. That is really what happens. But that construct around grace happens sort of as a result of those laws. You know, Jesus comes in and Jesus effectively says, the law is not going to save you. The end. You have tried your best to not make the mistake that drew you into the exile, right? The whole point of that law or the legal system that they establish is so that the exile doesn't happen again. And even though you may mean well by the law, you have now made the law the most important thing. That is not how it works. God's grace is actually what cleanses us and saves us. So it happens to us too. There are certain ways that we must worship. Boom, right? Or if someone comes in, I mean, we had an, oh, okay. We had an usher and he's so sorry about it. <laughs> we had an usher take a hat off of a child coming into church about a year ago because you're not supposed to wear a hat in church. Yes, and you're also not supposed to take something off a child. So there was a moment where I just had to say kindly, don't touch someone's child. You cannot take something off of a child who isn't yours. Duh. I mean, that's just how, how kind of shaming is that, right? And that was not his intent at all. He meant it to be respectful, right? Take a hat off before you come into church. That To show your respect, yes, that's fine, except no one gets the context when you just rip it off the head. So we have to watch ourselves and balance what is respectful, polite, certain behavior. Nothing wrong with that. But we should not get it backwards to think that if we don't do it, somehow God does not receive us well. That is not the case. God wants us here. And really, when you're the biggest hot mess you are, that's the best time to go to church. Not when you're feeling great. I mean, when life is good and you're looking sharp and all the other stuff, like, sure, come to church. But really, it's when everything is going wrong and you feel awful and you know you look worse, that's when you should come to church. And if people don't think they can because they're supposed to look good when they're here, we should be very careful that we have not set that expectation because that gets us backwards. And now I'm way off on a tangent. Okay, let's keep going. So we have one question was excellent around the difference between Cain and Abel, one tending the ground, one tending the flocks. I will get to that. It's a good question. The other though is a general question about the way in which people use scripture to create an understanding of how we live in the world. The specific question was around a conversation that this woman had with some friends who were interpreting Genesis through the lens of Paul and then drawing a conclusion. And the question is whether or not that's a good idea. If that's a good idea, how do we do it faithfully? If it's not a good idea, how then do you respond to someone who does that and wants to do that faithfully. 
So we're going to step up out of Genesis to simply say, Paul is not Jesus. Okay? That is the starting place. Paul can never say anything that somehow limits what Jesus has told us. It's not good. If we look at most of the limits of Christian theology that seeks to define what is right and wrong, what is good or bad, and on and on, it is almost every single time hearkening back to Paul, not to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus says everyone's good. Well, that can't possibly be true, right? We've got to somehow put a boundary around that. And so what Paul does in his letters is tries to have that idea hit the ground with some sort of specificity. You've heard me say it before, Paul started a bunch of churches, and as those churches tried to do this Christian life, they ran into problems. Some people thought it should happen this way, some people thought it should happen that way. They would write a letter to Paul and say, hey, Paul, should it be this or that? And Paul wrote back to that group to try and answer that question in a pragmatic way to help them move forward. We have since taken those specific pragmatic answers that are meant to be within a certain community at a certain period of time and extrapolated them to the 21st century to put boundaries around the way that we live. It is not a wrong desire to do so. But if anything from Paul is counter to what Jesus teaches us, don't do it. If anything from the Old Testament is counter to what Jesus teaches us, don't do it. Jesus came in a, with a new covenant, which literally changes all of the stuff that had been taught before him. Can we learn from the Old Testament? Of course we can. But if the Old Testament ever says, do this, not that, and Jesus says, that's wrong, it's wrong because we are Christian. That does not work for a lot of churches who want to create very specific boundaries around right and wrong. But if Jesus is our savior, then our starting place is Jesus, and anything that undoes Jesus should not be what we follow. So that is the answer. Without the specificity of the question, if your friend says, but Paul says X, then a very good response is, but Jesus. That's it, and fill in the blank. All right, let's jump in. Chapter four, we're gonna start with new birth. So if you open up chapter four, look at the very first verse. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. So first off, we have to say that names have meaning here. We remember Adam was made of the Adama, right? He was the dirt man made of the dirt. Eve literally means the living. From Eve comes 
all of humanity, this idea that Eve is the mother of everything. We get to Cain and Abel, their names have meaning too. Cain literally means acquired. So Eve, Adam and Eve, acquire Cain from God with the help of the Lord. There is this very tangible understanding that God made it possible that Adam and Eve were to have a child and they acquired or received Cain from God. Abel, Abel's name means literally a puff of wind, something very unsubstantial. And that is an important note to make because Cain ultimately kills Abel. Do you have a chair? Is that okay? Okay. Um, so we have this, the meaning of the people and the characters of the story described in their names. Eve, mother of everything. Cain is received from God and Abel is going to be gone like that, like a puff of wind. So as we move into this, Cain and Abel have certain roles. Cain is meant to grow stuff. Cain is working the land like a farmer. That should harken back to what was going on in Eden, right? Adam and Eve were really to care for the ground. And Abel cares for the livestock. Also something that God said to Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve were charged with taking care of the creation, all the stuff that grows and all the living animals. And so Cain and Abel effectively represent the two macro tasks that God gave to the dirt man, okay? Then we get to the offering. So before we get to the offering, is there a question? Uh, one of the questions that was asked from last week in advance of this, of today, was whether taking care of the ground versus the livestock is somehow makes one better than the other? The answer is no. Adam was charged with, and Eve, I guess, but technically it was the dirt man. The man was charged with taking care of the things that live and the animals. So effectively, these two boys represent the two arms of the task God gave Adam. It's not meant to be one better than the other. But there is this beginning of a differentiation, right? Adam's supposed to do all of that. His two sons each take one portion of that. So we naturally get this branching off, specialization, if you will. And why would the storyteller specialize or define a specialization? It's very easy that Cain and Abel could have each done both right? Do a little bit of farming in the morning, go tend to the herds in the afternoon. You know, they could have just been like a team doing all of it together. Remember why this was written. This was written to begin to answer the why of the cultural structure around the Israelites at the time. And the Israelites were people who farmed and shepherded. And so Cain and Abel represent the two most valuable uses of time that helped to feed and sustain and maintain security for the Israelite people. That's really what they are doing in this moment. So any questions about that before we move on to the gift? So relatively easy, Cain and Abel, they're here. 
Now we're going to get to the gifts. There is a natural desire for Cain and Abel to worship God. That's because worship was critical to the Israelites, to the Jewish people. Even in exile, worship was absolutely necessary. And so the storyteller here doesn't assume any decision-making. Cain and Abel did not decide to worship or not to worship. They worship because it's what we do. We're made for it. Did you all see years back, and there have been articles written about this since, neurologists have studied Tibetan monks who go into trance-like meditative states. When someone is able to get really deep into a trance like a meditation, their brain function actually flips and everything gets activated. And there's a moment when they can put the little hat on the monks and they can start to pray and they can start to pray and their brain activity is relatively stable and things start to happen. And then in an instant, everything lights up. It's as if they get to a point where they are in touch with something incredibly primal. I love that this story connects this primal need for us to worship. It's just in us. It's what we're meant to do. Even though today we offer it up like a choice, there is no real choice. We're created for this. And so Cain and Abel naturally go and worship God. Look at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Ooh. Cain brings stuff he grew. Abel brings stuff he tended as a shepherd. You okay? We'll wait just one second. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. We're good, we're good. Do you know those doors slam shut? We need to put a little something on them to make them close softer. Good, okay, we're all okay. I'm getting thumbs up from, from authorities in the back. So thank you, we're all good. Um, okay, so, oh, it was Margaret Rattel. She just waved as she walked, well, bye, like, bye, okay. So in this moment, Cain and Abel both bring some stuff to God. That is very normal, natural. Jewish tradition is that you bring an offering to God, right? In many, many traditions all over the world, have the same idea. You bring a thing to God. We were just talking at the beginning of this class about making an offering to God, right? Giving of ourselves, time, talent, treasure. We make this offering to God because it's good for us. It's good for Cain and Abel too. So why then does God like Abel's offering and not Cain's? It's not difficult to see the difference in the offerings. Cain brings, let's really parse it. Cain brings to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, nice and clean. But then it says, Abel brought the firstlings of his flock. It is meant to be different. The difference is Cain brought some good stuff, but Abel brought 
the first good stuff. So what are the ramifications of those two gifts? The implication here is that Cain brought some of his stuff. Great. But that Abel brought the very first, which means if Abel is bringing the very firstlings, the young firstborn, then what Abel's doing is trusting that even though he has effectively given over, sacrificed, the very first of the new generation of the flock, God will be faithful in bringing more. So even though he's given over, Abel gives over the stuff that he absolutely needs for security and for health moving forward in faith that he will get more. Whereas the implication is that Cain got all of his stuff and gave God a portion. What happens in us is very different when we take stock of everything we have and then give God some, knowing that we have plenty left, than when we give to God not knowing for sure if we will have enough. The commitment and the faithfulness of giving in those ways is radically different. That is what I mean when I say giving is not about money. Giving is about the faithfulness that it takes to believe that you will always have enough. And here's the secret. When you give enough money to where you are feeling vulnerable, it's not that you will get a lot more money back. It's that what you have left, no matter what it is, will always be enough because you have changed your own understanding of need. I have many, many times sat with people who say they can't give more, or maybe they can't even give what they gave last year because times are really tough. They are feeling insecure. They are feeling vulnerable. And yet they have a new car and the club dues are paid and the tuition is paid and all of that stuff. It is important for us to know in our soul, it's not about the money. It's about our priority. Who are we really is how we spend our money. That may not be for every culture and every point in time in our history. For us, that is true because it is how we define ourselves. We won't get more money if we give money to God. What we will get is a change in our perspective so that no matter how much we have, we always have more than we need because we have changed what is most important to us. Does that make sense? We see that in the fourth chapter of the Bible. Cain made a good offering. Nothing ever says that Cain's offering wasn't good. But if Cain gave out of security, Abel gave out of vulnerability. And that's what God prefers because it changes us for the good, makes us more faithful to our core. However, it's not good enough for Cain. So as we keep going, any questions about that before we get to Cain's anger? 
You know, I'm resisting getting preachy. <laughs> okay. That was me resisting preachy, by the way. Okay. Look at the second half of verse five. Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. What an odd little moment. So God says, why are you angry in that very parental way? I mean, any parent knows that you often ask your children questions you know the answer to because you want them to have to answer because part of the formation is in the articulation of the answer. So can Abel bring these offerings? Abel's is marked as good and Cain's is not. First, how do they know? God never, at least in the story, says, I like yours, not yours. So maybe we can add time to this story such that maybe Abel's flocks really thrived and flourished, whereas Cain's crops didn't. And so over the course of months, Cain is looking over there and saying, Abel's doing really well, and I am struggling here. And then, they conclude that God must have blessed Abel because of his offering, and I was not blessed because of mine. That then begins to create the resentment, right? And that resentment starts to fester, and Cain gets angry. Why? Because Cain feels entitled. Cain gave just like Abel gave, he thinks. They look, it looks the same value, right? except the intention of the giving is different. And so the blessing that Abel receives, even though the ancient peoples may have perceived that blessing as something tangible, that blessing is spiritual too. And so just like us, we may give the same amount of money, but perhaps one person seems blessed and the other doesn't. What's the intention behind the giving? Because the intention behind the giving is what shapes us. And I'll say a word in a minute. God's love and blessing is not conditional. And so we're going to talk about that too. So just bookmark that for a minute from now. Here we have Cain getting angry. Cain's anger festers. And God says, hey, what's wrong? God knows, but he needs Cain to know. And Cain doesn't understand the difference between their giving. And so Cain's anger continues to fester, and perhaps he thinks he has good reason for it to be angry because their gifts seemed so equal. But God offers a warning here. Sin is lurking by the door. What a great little image. God, faith, is what creates this shield from sin. And when your faith cracks, it's allowing that sin to begin to creep in. God's charge to Cain is to be very careful, to master keeping sin at bay, because sin is always there. And that mastery is what God intends for Cain to gain through true faithfulness. 
So the implication here is that Abel's true faith has kind of kept him from succumbing to sin. But Cain's lack of that true faith, acting faithful but not perhaps being faithful, has allowed sin to creep in. And that's going to happen very soon. Any questions about that? We're moving fast today. All right, number three. Here comes the murder. Look at verse eight. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. When they went out into the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Great line. Cain asks Abel to go for a walk. Why in the world is Abel going out for a walk with Cain? We know Cain is angry. So does Abel not know that Cain is angry? Maybe Cain's hidden the anger. Maybe it's festered inside, but he's kept it hidden. So Abel doesn't suspect anything. Or maybe Cain has been angry outwardly. And Abel thinks, let's go walk it off, right? I mean, we're brothers. Let's go deal with it. Let's go take a walk and we'll talk through this. Because in the end, Abel hasn't done anything to Cain, right? Abel did this and Cain did that. And Abel just received a blessing. That's on God. That's not on Abel. Yet Cain can't do anything to God. And so Cain lashes out to his brother. Cain rises up, kills Abel. And then God has this wonderful little moment. Where's your brother? And Cain's response is so ugly. This harkens back to Eve eats the fruit. Then they know they're naked and they hide and God comes walking through the garden and says, where are you? God knows where they are, but God asked the question anyway. God knows where Abel is, but God asked the question anyway. In both of these instances, as will be echoed and repeated over and over and over, God's immediate reaction to something terrible is giving us a chance to repent. That's what this question does. Opens up this moment where Cain in his anger has done this terrible thing and God says, where's your brother? And Cain has this moment where he's got two choices. The first choice is to fess up, confess his wrong, repent and return to God or double down on the evil. And that's what he chooses. But it's important that we note that God gives him that second choice, right? The action itself was not all there is. God gives him another chance to make a good choice, but Cain chooses wrong again. God says, where's your brother? And Cain's answer is way uglier than Eve's right? Where are you? We're over here. We're naked. And God says, what'd you do? Did you eat that fruit? And of course Eve says, oh, oh, the snake made me do it, right? Remember Adam actually blamed Eve first and then Eve blames the snake, right? So that's, that's a whole lot better than Cain's answer to God. Am I my brother's keeper? Just takes every good thing that God has done and just smashes it. Cain's ugliness to God 
effectively says, that's your job and you failed. God's response to Cain is very similar to God's response to Adam and Eve. In a, in a way, God's punitive response is out of his heartbreak. There's not, there's not vengeance here with God. It's almost as if God does not have the ability to do anything else, which brings up an interesting question. Who's in control here? Is God able to do anything? We like to answer that question, yes. So why in the world did God send Adam and Eve out of the garden? I mean, couldn't God have just said, poof, and now you don't know what you know because of the fruit and you have a second chance? Sure, why not? Could God at this point have said, poof, Abel's back alive, Cain gets a redo, and maybe this time they'll be loving brothers and everything will go okay. Could God do that? Of course. Then why not? God is not vengeful, but God is realistic. Adam and Eve chose not to follow God's commands. Cain has chosen not to follow God's commands. And you've heard me say before that everything about our faith is predicated on the idea of free choice. We must be able to say no to God, even if maybe in the end, none of us will. We have to have the, the capacity and the ability to say no, or else love is not real. God's love for us is real, true love. True love cannot be forced. And so in this moment, in this moment, God's response to Cain, God's response to Cain is almost like it's out of his control because it's Cain's choice, right? Just like it was Adam and Eve's choice, they chose not to reciprocate the love. Cain chose not to reciprocate God's love. It's kind of out of God's hands. God did all these wonderful things, but Cain's got to make that choice. Just like us, we have to make the choice. God will not force us to choose a particular path. God will give us a chance to choose over and over and over, right? God gave Cain a chance to choose. Cain chose to kill Abel. God gave Cain a chance to choose again. Where's your brother? And Cain chose that sinfulness. Over and over again, Cain makes the wrong choice, but over and over again, God gives him the choice. And at any point in time, Cain can pivot and make the right choice and can heal that relationship but God will not force that choice. That's really, really important for us to understand because that helps us to know what Jesus is all about. Any questions about that before we move on? Because I'm running out of time. That's really what you wanna hear to then ask a question, isn't it? Okay, so we're gonna jump ahead. Ah, oh, I'm not gonna have enough time for this. So verse 10. Lord says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. 
When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. This is the consequence of the killing. This is the choice that Cain makes. This is not because God is vengeful. Cain chose this path and chose it twice. And so what God is really doing is saying, because of your choice, this is now your future. Not God punishing. It's really, really critical for us to understand. This is not God punishing. This is God informing. Cain, you made this choice. This is now what you have to look forward to. Because you have chosen to break from me, your reality will now get harder and harder. The implication here is that Adam's choice made life only somewhat harder. Cain's choice is now like a snowball falling downhill. His choice has now made it harder than it even was because of Adam's choice. This, this effect, this magnification of wrong is something I think we all kind of understand. You make one little lie. I mean, what do we tell our children, right? Little lies can become big lies. You make a little wrong choice, that can become a bigger wrong choice, that can become a massive wrong choice, and you can find yourself so lost, so far down a bad path, and it's really hard to turn around and come back. Never impossible, but it just gets harder and harder and harder. And so Cain's choice magnifies Adam and Eve's choice. And then Cain responds for the first time with fear. Up to this point, Cain's ego has been in control, but now Cain's fear has taken over. And his response to God is, but wait a minute, if I'm forced to go wander, couldn't someone just kill me? Quick note, if this is literal history, who is there to maybe kill Cain? All right. <laughs> Just want to make a note, okay? That's just one of those moments where if somebody needs for God to have done this and that there were two people, no other people, Adam and Eve, who had two sons, now one's dead, who's killing Cain? What is he afraid of? Who is he afraid of, okay? So that's just a little note. So God then has no problem with this question because there are more people. God has no problem with this question and out of love, marks Cain to keep him safe. This is just like the clothes that God made for Adam and Eve. Why? Because God still loves them. Cain has made wrong choice after wrong choice, way worse, way worse than the choice Adam and Eve made. And yet, God loves him anyway. God loves him enough to protect him from being killed and to say, that anyone who acts against Cain will receive sevenfold vengeance for their actions. So there's an interesting note here, because we get, lots of people will tell me, you know, what about eye for an eye kind of stuff in the, in the Old Testament? In this moment, the Israelites do not understand it that way. Cain killed Abel and his consequence is not then execution. It's not a life for a life. God protects Cain. And God says, if anyone hurts Cain, they'll receive sevenfold, which again, if someone were to kill Cain, their punishment won't be death. You can't be killed seven times. 
Instead, God is establishing a different kind of economy here because for God, no action we ever make is ever the last action. There is always, always an opportunity to return to God. It may not be easy, but it's always possible. And here we see that Cain gets the chance to keep on living with the hope that he will at some point return to God. Even the people who may offend Cain, hurt Cain later, the option to make that well is not taken away because life is not over. Life's just changed. And Cain gets the chance, as does everyone else, to repent and return to God. I do want to note the irony here. Cain's afraid of leaving his family because somehow he'll be less safe if he's not with his family. Well, it didn't work out too well for Abel, did it? So, okay. Jump at the very end. We've got this repetition of the story. Humans choosing to turn from God and God loving them anyway. Happened with Adam and Eve, happened with Cain. The end of chapter four and pretty much all of chapter five is simply meant to connect the dots between Adam and Eve and Noah. We get this genealogy of so-and-so had so-and-so had so-and-so and we get it all the way down to Noah. The very end of chapter four has Cain going away from the presence of God, settling in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, she conceived and bore Enoch, and he built a city and named it Enoch after his son. So again, who is this woman that Cain goes off to marry to have children with? Where does she come from? I mean, presumably this isn't Adam and Eve's daughter. That genetically is problematic. Um, but. Cain goes off and has a child. So Adam and Eve turn from God. God sends them out of the garden. What's the first thing they do? They have a child. Cain is sent away to wander the earth. What's the first thing he does? He has a child. Sort of strange, but having children is this necessary call. It is our responsibility to procreate and to take care of the world. And so in both instances, when that relationship with God is broken, there is this hopefulness in new birth, right? The new birth of Cain and Abel didn't work out so well. Then the new birth of Cain's son, Enoch. That's also not gonna work out so well. Um, we're not gonna deal with that. But what we get at the beginning of chapter five is this. The list of the descendants of Adam. When God created humankind, he made them in the likeness of God, male and female who created them and blessed them and named them humankind. Verse three, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his likeness, according to his image and named him Seth. In essence, we get at the beginning of chapter five, a do-over. Adam and Eve went off and had Cain and Abel, and it went awry. So Adam and Eve start over again, and they have Seth. Seth's gonna work out better than Cain, but fast forward some generations, and it goes off the rails again. And so when we come back next week, we're gonna be looking at chapters six through eight. So we're not actually looking at chapter five. Read it if you want to, but here's the summary. Seth has a bunch of, there are many generations between Seth and Noah. There's chapter five. That's all I have. Hope you have a good week. See you next week.